All right, welcome to episode 34 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Glenn Sharp. He's an analyst and editor at the California Energy Commission and lives in West Sacramento. He's a former professional boxer, and we're here to discuss his book, Punching from the Shadows, Memoir of a Minor League Professional Boxer. Welcome, Glenn. Hey. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me. And thank you so much for coming on, Glenn. Mm. And so, guys, recently, well, recently, about a few minutes ago, we were talking with Glenn about existentialism and particularly his ideas regarding the work of Viktor Frankl. And what's so cool is that Glenn and I found out that our kind of our views and our work together is pretty aligned. And so, um, which is like, which is obviously really cool for us because I feel like, like, man, Twitter has really created such a community for people where like we really can just kind of come together and share ideas that a lot of us, a lot of the time already kind of have. So, um, so Glenn, the first thing I wanted to ask you, and again, you know, just thank you so much for coming on. And I think just your work and your story is really profound. And so I wanted to ask you in terms of like success and failure, what do you feel like failure can teach us? And do you feel like it's ever possible to have success without it? Uh, me personally would say, say no, because I, I have that general thinking that suffering is the path to wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have to fail a little bit to grow a little bit. And um, success and victory really doesn't cause you to, to look within yourself because you're, you're celebrating your success. You're not asking what went wrong. And so uh, I think it sounds a little corny, but sometimes I say failure can be your friend. You just have to let it be your friend. Yeah, and, and how so? How would that happen? Well, you, in in the case of, of my story, um, I was r really frustrated and uh, uh, I, I guess kind of broken in a bit by my failure. So my professional boxing record was one and two. So my aspirations were far greater than my, my level of success, and that kind of broke me and it took a, a good while to, to to look into what happened and to admit to myself my participation in that failure so if if we're affected from others uh, there's not much you could do about that but you could certainly look in the mirror and, and see uh, where, where we went wrong in, in our own experiences and that's what that's what this story was about so I uh, I wrote the most of it kind of uh of my short professional career but then the, the last third of it is is how i discussed approaching the failure and how i came to terms with it and how ultimately that made me a, a healthier and better person yeah. and what was it like for you initially what, when you like when you initially failed what was it like for you to sort of how did you kind of see it or conceptualize it um i i think uh Maybe this happens a lot for athletes and, and, and others, but I identified so much with my existence as a boxer, you know, and that was my persona. And that was just uh, my presence to the world that when I was no longer a boxer and I no longer belonged to that that club or brotherhood, I, I felt really uh, alienated from everything and as, as though I, I wasn't of much worth. And um and it's difficult for people to be around someone who, who thinks so little of themselves in that way. So what it, it took me a long time to, to build a life that I that was of worth or, or that I was proud of, outside of boxing. And then it, I could come to terms with my my boxing failure. So uh, probably a lot of bigger time athletes go through a similar experience just on a, a bigger or more public stage. Since I was 
you know, like the title of the book says, a minor league boxer. Since my experience was uh, not very public, just to my family and the, and the people associated with me, it was on a much smaller scale, but probably the same story. Yeah, yeah and um, do you feel like you put you like you stuck all your chips into boxing, and that's kind of why when there was no boxing, you felt. Um, like, like that, you know, yeah. that sense of uh, failure and like, I, wouldn't, I don't want to say loss of purpose. I don't want to put words in your mouth or anything like that. But, you know, without well, boxing, yeah. Well, what's the purpose is uh, that, that's not putting words in my mouth because I ask that question a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, um, I, I guess you could say I put all my chips into boxing. Um, part of the problem was that um, I, I guess I didn't have many chips. So I, I wasn't as... Um, I, w- I wasn't as convicted as, as to committing myself to being a, the best boxer I could when I was young. And then when I uh, began boxing as a professional, my failure to, to, to receive a better education, so to speak, really became clear. And so I was, uh, I was in over my head and I, and, uh, I felt I had to leave because Unlike other sports, you could be a bad baseball player or a bad tennis player, and uh, you, you don't get damaged. But if you're a bad boxer, you're getting hurt all the time. And so I realized I, I couldn't continue with that, and so I was ashamed of my myself. But but all I ever thought of myself was as a as a boxer. And so it, it, it took me a long time to realize I could have a good purpose in life outside of boxing. And it, and it took me to do that in order to come to understand uh, my history in boxing. You know, uh, so I, I remember reading in the book earlier on in the book when um, when you first wanted to pursue boxing, your dad definitely was not into the idea. Um, right. He was more about you, you know, getting an education because he wanted you to have something that he didn't uh, have. Right. Um, but you know what's uh, funny? It, when I was reading that part in the book and how you wanted to pursue it and how you were kind of like pushing for it anyway, it was, it's weird. I, I get what the end result was, but it almost seemed like it still was the right thing to do, like to try to do what it was that was, you know, that creative pursuit. I, I agree. I see what you're saying when you're saying like maybe you're saying you didn't fully commit to it uh, at, you know, um, you know, in the training and we'll talking about later, but that initial thing of like wanting to do what you, what you're inspired to do. Do, do you think that was still the right uh, impulse or? Yeah. So I, uh, I, I have uh, no problems with what I did. And I think my father even came to understand, you know, a person is going to do what they're going to do. And it's, it's even the same with, with say personal relationships, you know, people love who they're going to love. And, uh, you know, someone on the outside can say, no, don't get involved with this person. It's not going to be good. But you can't stop you loving who you love or what you love. And so I, I, I really love boxing. And so my life is more complete because of that experience. It was, it was a harsh experience, and it helped to make me the person that I, that I am today. And so it, it was a, a well, well worth the effort, well worth the pain, I would say. And Glenn, what was your start like in boxing? How did you sort of, how did you become interested in it? Um, I I remember the, the the first fight I remember watching with my father was the the Bob Foster Dick Tiger 
light heavyweight fight, I think that was probably about 1967 or so, 68. Mm-hmm. I was nine years old. So I just, uh, I mean, I can't explain why I fell in love with boxing, but I just did from, from, from that moment. I said, man, I would like to do that. Mm-hmm. But I grew up in a, you know, so in a, in a household that didn't st- stress boxing and, and even in the, the locales we lived in the Midwest, there were no boxing programs. So I had no chance to, to, to develop as a boxer until I moved to Sacramento here in California when I was 20 years old, mm-hmm. which is kind of late for a boxer or a, a, an athlete of any sport to begin. But that I just came to a, a it's called the Capital Boxing Gym here in, in uh in Sacramento, and that's where I began began training. And it's a, it's a your boxing gyms are really weird, unique experiences because you could have uh, the the greenest novice training in the in the same gym with world ranked contenders, and that was what happened here in, in California. It's just a really unique experience. Mm-hmm. And when did you know you wanted to become a boxer, or professionally? Well, I, I think by the time I was a teenager, I, I, I said, man, if I ever get a chance to do that, I'm, I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, I really didn't develop physically till I was older, probably about 17 or 18. And then once that happened and I fell out a little bit, I said, God, I got to find a way to, to box somehow. And so fortunately, I ended up in California here where I, I could uh, apply myself. Mm-hmm. You know, it was interesting to me. Um... There, when you were learning boxing before you filled out in high school, there was this, I, I remember reading you. There's this uh, you had a style that was like for somebody who weighed 170-ish pounds, but yeah. until you actually grew up to that like amount, that's like yeah. when you actually start to feel like the you know that balance while fighting, which is that was interesting to me. It's like as if like you maybe you didn't know, but it's like as if like, your body knew before that age like how you were gonna be fighting, and then you kind of grew into it. Yeah, I think there, there's something to that. Well, you know, uh, there's a whole lot of our life that goes on that we're not aware of. And so I think uh, my body or my conscience knew what was going on, even though I consciously did not know what was going on. And uh, so I was kind of developing for what I was going to be, although I didn't know why that was happening. And Glenn, so sometimes people, when especially when, when their identity becomes intertwined with either in a particular profession when it comes to um let's say sometimes even relationships or a particular relationships or a particular relationship right um they tend to kind of uh, this sort of the idea or the obsession is intertwined with perfectionistic thinking where it's like if this is part of your or rather the only part of your identity you feel like you have to be perfect at it because it's pretty much the thing that defines who you are as a person generally so have you ever struggled with perfectionistic thinking when you were boxing did you feel like at some yes yeah yes your fights had to be perfect Right. So uh, I, I remember feeling that after my my first professional fight, which I which I won by decision, instead of celebrating that, I was so hard on myself because I just going through everything that I did wrong. And I said a really good fighter would have taken care of this easier. You know, I was really, really hard on myself and not just accepting a bit of success that I had. And so I. Uh, as I've gotten older, I, I, you know, you hear about that and you read about that where people are, are striving for the sense of perfectionism and we're, we're never going to reach that. And it's, and it's really self, uh, self-sabotaging. You're just limiting yourself when you think that way. And uh, instead of just accepting the good that, that, that comes your way. 
And a, a, a good contrast to that is, is Jackie Lopez, the guy that I was a sparring partner for and who was a great, great light heavyweight. He just had, um, well, I, I felt it at the time, but as you know, 30 years later, I, I could see that I, w- I was right. He just had the healthiest and best attitude about boxing and competition in that sense and that you know you prepare as well as you can and then when you enter the contest and it's it's really out of your hands you just do what you can and if you win you win and if you lose you lose that's the that's not the big deal the big deal is that you committed yourself to winning what happens is rather irrelevant you know and uh his his healthy perspective in that way was a contrast to my sense of perfectionism yeah. Did you guys ever get a chance to talk about it at that time? The sort of conflicting attitudes you had about boxing? No. So uh, I I don't think I could have articulated any type of thinking like that at the time. So we didn't talk that we didn't talk that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, it would be really interesting now, you know, because I I see him every once in a while. Um, it, it would be nice to meet with him and talk about things like this because he's um, Yaki is not someone who's going to go out and express his emotions so openly but he he has a lot of profound thoughts about uh the experience of boxing and of course he competed at such a high level that uh he he could speak about people who lived at a stratified level in boxing so i think i'm going to try to do that with him sometime that'd be really cool to see what you learn from him yes and then, so, um, okay, so my next question, and you obviously, if you feel uncomfortable answering it, that's absolutely okay, because it's a little bit more personal. Um, so when it comes to perfectionistic thinking, usually the sort of identity that's intertwined with it, whether, let's say, you know, it's becoming a doctor, becoming a lawyer, in this case, becoming a boxer, becoming a professional, anything. So a lot of times, I mean, it just happens to be that that person chose that particular profession, that the perfectionism itself what is what the underlying issue is. It's not necessarily not being the best at your profession, right? What, Again, whatever that happens to be. So did you ever feel like for you it was a way that, if, let's, say, let's say if your thinking was that, I, if, let's say, I, got the, I guess the thinking, and if the goal was that for me to become the best boxer, let's say in the world or in the country or whatever it is, do you feel like, it, whether you knew it then or you may be accepted now, whether for you it was a way for you to feel accepted, worthy, and lovable? Uh, yeah, you know, that's kind of, hard to admit but i i think there's some truth to that that i thought i would be more worthy of a person if uh if i were a successful boxer and i i don't understand why that's the case and i really can't explain that and i think that's why uh failing a boxing how i did was so hard on me because uh i thought that's how i was going to be you know accepted by the world so to speak you know and and that's what a good part of the the healthy work that that comes with dealing with my failure is you you find out you're a worthy person whether you're a good boxer or a good doctor or whatever anyway and and that's that's the work that we we need to do on ourselves as people yeah and how did you um deal with uh fear throughout your career like, because when I was reading through the book, there are actually many times like you'd be talking about certain philosophers like Ortega y Gasset or um, or Herigl's view on uh, fear, and and you related that to boxing. Um, what's what's your philosophy on fear? Uh, uh, I I have a general idea that the the human body or the the human person was constructed to feel fear on a regular basis, mm-hmm. and we've we've constructed a society 
where for the most part, or at least, you know, say here in the United States of America, for the most part, you could go without having to be fearful, like physically fearful for all of your life. And, uh, and I think that creates some problems for people because we're, we're meant to, to feel fear every once in a while. And maybe boxing is a way for, uh, for that need to be filled because it's just natural to, to feel fear when someone is going to, uh, try to knock you unconscious, you know, or hit you. And, uh, and I think that's part of one of the attractions of boxing for people is that it, it allows them to express this, this need to, to feel fear. And, uh, it's, it's really uncomfortable at first, you know, like I, I talked about in my first amateur fight, I was so scared. I thought I was going to pee myself right before it started. I was so scared, but after a while, you, you realize that hollowness in your stomach and the butterflies are, are natural. And once you learn to direct that fear a little bit, it makes you a, a sharper, more aware competitor. And so, uh, we kind of live in a world where we're taught that fear is a bad thing or fear is something that you don't want to know when actually I think it leads to a heightened uh, sense of experience and a, and a heightened life. Yeah. And, and, you know, there's a surfer, uh, I think his name is Laird Hamilton, one of those guys who surfs those mega waves all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think he expressed something similar to that. He said the human being being was made to be afraid and the reason the way that i fulfill that need is by surfing big waves mm-hmm. and uh, i try to get scared you know regularly and and when he when i read that i said i understand that exactly yeah wow so what are the most like i guess profound experiences that i've ever had was i remember watching the i don't know glenn if you've seen it um they recently hbo did a documentary on muhammad ali's life so it was a two-part series and so the way that it started off was that it was pretty much Muhammad Ali behind the scenes talking about um, pretty much how terrified he was behind every match or let's say before every match. And so with Muhammad, he said that like, he's like, you know, people tend to think of me as like this really sort of big guy, right? Who's never afraid and who kind of comes out of night after night and, you know, who sort of puts on this great performance. But he's like, the thing is, I am terrified between every, between and then before every match. That for me, he's like, I always think about the things that I could lose because he's like the life of a boxer is that where you pretty Pretty much if you lose one fight that can actually send your career down a drain so for me that yeah. was like really great because i was like wow so if muhammad ali is one of these people who can be terrified about things that are important to him that means it would be okay for me to feel the same way too yeah so uh, i hadn't seen that documentary yet so uh, I'm, I'm going to watch it but that's true when when you're young in first boxing you 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 don't understand that everyone else is scared just like you 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 think you're scared and this guy Looks like he's ready to go to a party, mm-hmm. but he's trembling too. Yeah. And uh, it's only a little later with some experience you realize everyone is scared just the same. And and uh, anyone who says they're not scared is either lying or they're they're might be maybe saying that the fear is not getting the best of me, but they still they still feel it. And and it's interesting what you say about Ali admitting that he felt fear. I I think that drove a lot of the antics that that he did. You know, like when he would taunt Joe Frazier and, and all when he would make all those poems when he was younger, he was, that's how he was kind of venting the, the discomfort of his fear. And, uh, you know, he, when he was getting ready to fight Frazier all three times, he knew how hard that was going to be. And I think he was just trying to bluff himself through, through the fear because it's 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 a daunting experience yeah absolutely and the grandiosity and or anger is pretty much, it's a way for you to cope or anybody to cope. With yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
And and so for you, in terms of like, um, I know obviously the way we kind of understand or conceptualize perfectionism is obviously usually as a bad thing, and it definitely has a really dark and unhealthy side. But I wonder for you, Glenn, in terms of fear and perfectionism, how do you feel like both of those ideas are, I mean, I guess both of those goals, not goals, but both of those sort of concepts helped you in your fights? Oh, well, I, I probably was not really experienced enough to, to use my fear uh, to the highest degree, but I was pr progressing on that. So, uh, uh, like you, I think you're right about the, the idea of perfectionism, and it's got a, a, a positive side and a negative side, because the desire to be better is what drives drives us to improve, or you know, to invent and to create. So there's got to be a healthy balance between constantly wanting to improve oneself, and then not condemning oneself because you fail to achieve that that level of uh, uh, perfection because I think you're we're always going to envision a higher level of performance than we're capable of of delivering mm -hmm. and you just have to learn to accept that that you could still have performed admirably without being perfect yeah it's, mm -hmm. Go ahead. and yeah. so that's just it, it takes a, a, a at least in my experience it takes a while to learn how to balance that that perfectionist drive yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. Yeah, like for example, if you're too down on yourself uh, from being too perfectionistic, it might stop you from taking more action. And to have yeah. more of a long-term scope of what it is that you're pursuing, and maybe not to get down on yourself, is what'll let you get much better at that thing. Even though, from that perfectionist mindset, it's like uh, it's counterintuitive. You think like, oh no, if I was better at this, I would have done well. But if you take the other kind of thinking on a long-term approach you'll get better anyway and yeah. you'll be able to yeah. have yeah. a balance like a healthy balance mm -hmm. yeah. yeah very nuanced yeah mm -hmm. yeah and um i wanted to also ask um what was it about like um about uh Herigl's, uh philosophy that really uh stuck out to you i know i asked before like uh, w what about the uh, philosophy like spoke to you but I remember like reading uh, not not specifically the Herigl part actually the Ortega y Gasset um, there's this part where you talked about that balance between the contemporary life and uh, a creative pursuit and how you sort of like um, you drew off of his philosophy to kind of you know how you went about living your life and what exactly like about his philosophy uh, spoke to you? Well, it was it, it was it's very interesting. Um, we could I could talk for a long, long time about this, but you know, Lo, it's related to what I said before. In our contemporary society, we've created this existence that's so, at least physically safe for for most of us and, co and comfortable. Where in our, our earlier stages of our existence, we had to hunt and fish and farm in order just to exist and then we've created this world where none of that is necessary but so many of us spend our leisure time hunting fishing and gardening so we do for fun exactly what we used to have to do just to stay alive so there's something just in, innately rooted in us and that to, to live in our earlier stages of our you know cultural development in uh I, th I think that's kind of related to what you were just talking about the perfectionism, perfectionism a little bit, and that um, 
you know, you just you you choose this task that you're drawn to, which connects you to our earlier roots in life. And you don't have to do it perfectly. What you just have to do is commit yourself so strongly to it, which is what Arago stressed for me. And that, you know, the goal is not to hit the the bullseye with in archery. The goal is not to hit the bullseye with the arrow. The goal is not to need to aim. And that's sometimes hard to come to understand you certainly on your first reading and your first applications of this thinking you, you don't quite get it so it's you 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 don't want to try to be perfect but you become perfect more by not trying and uh mm-hmm. that that takes some work to to come to that level of under understanding mm-hmm. and so i I, th- I think those two those two philosophers are, are in, in my mind are, are pretty connected so we guess it stresses that you know we we in our pre-literate stage of cultural evolution still engaged in all these creative activities or creative activities that were related to our very existence and then Herigold takes it to a a, a real aesthetic highly in in my mind highly developed philosophical principle so reading those guys really helped me uh, both understand my failure in boxing and how I was developing as a as a person mm-hmm. and what would you say are the sources of your failure in boxing the first time around um, well pragmatically not not committing myself to, to having as complete a boxing education as I I should have so mm-hmm. like in Herigel's case he says you have to practice and practice and practice mm-hmm. and and that's a pragmatic bit you're you're also kind of reaching for some divine type of level of of talent but that comes from actually just doing the physical work so i didn't do as much physical work as as i needed to be prepared to be a a professional boxer and then i wasn't willing once i found out how what a difficult situation i was in i wasn't willing to make the commitment to stay to to become as good as i i can then i just kind of kept cut and ran and that's that's what hurt me so bad because I, uh, I, I wasn't the person that I thought that I was, yeah. and that's a part of healing from your failures. You, you have to be uh, uh, in order to be authentic. You have to be sincerely honest with yourself about where you came up short, mm-hmm. and uh, that was kind of the difficult difficult part of writing the book because I had to honestly I'm just looking in the mirror and say you fell short here and here and here and I wasn't condemning myself for that I was just being as objective as possible and once you accept that about yourself you see geez I'm, I'm a I'm a better person for for wearing that scar you know? yeah. and what's really tough about perfectionism and probably one of the more difficult parts of it is that a lot of times in order for people because they do feel like they have to live up to that ideal that they have in their minds a lot of times what they do is they actually don't put in full effort because this way, I mean, it's easy to tell yourself, well, if I failed, yes. I mean, I could have done better if I really right. wanted it. And yet what actually happens is like the person is still devastated regardless. Right. And so that's that form of self-protectionism, yeah. but you're just, you're just harming yourself with that type of thinking. And it's much healthier to be willing to fail. So that's, I go back to, to Yaki again. He was always willing to fail and, and that wasn't that as important to him as having tried as sincerely as possible. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that's why he's, uh, today, man, he still receives fan letters. He hasn't fought for 
close to 40 years, and he, he still received fan letters from all over the world. And people, I think, could sense how sincere and authentic of a person he was, and that that was a, f- a function of how he fought. Yeah. It's, it's really kind of beautiful. Yeah, and what's so cool to me, Glenn, is the fact that, like, um, so before the before we started filming, Glenn and I were talking about Viktor Frankl and his ideas of authenticity, and Glenn told me he actually was reading one of my tweets about it, which I thought was really cool, because it's like, wow, Glenn Sharp is reading my tweets about Viktor Frankl. Um, so what I thought was really interesting was that, Glenn, you said before that authenticity to you is also an important concept, especially when we sort of look at it in the context of failure. So how do you feel like the sort of idea of, let's say, the person as you are, or the authentic self how can that help you in some way overcome failure or the fear of failure well i think you 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 know yourself better when you've you when you're developed your level of authenticity so when i was a a younger man you know attracted to boxing i saw myself you know as kind of a a a tough guy Mm -hmm. and 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 someone who didn't need to to whine or cry about life and would just kind of bust through anything that got in my way. And then I found out I couldn't do that. And that was kind of devastating. Uh, I mean, I, I couldn't have articulated this when I was 23 or four years old, but I was kind of devastated to realize that uh, this persona that I had created of myself was actually an illusion. And it, it, it took me a long time to like throw away the, the broken mask and and realize and try to look at what was really existing and then develop that and that's how you in my my experience that's how you become authentic by getting rid of your your false mask or your false personas and looking at the person that you really are and then uh and then you have to come to accept that and i guess you could say even love your yourself for for what you are and it's uh it's it's not easy but then that helps you to understand your situation much better and so for the remainder of my life you know say it's been close to 30 years now after come to terms with how my authentic what my my authentic being is uh you just know yourself so much better so when you're confronted with some situation that could upset your equilibrium you you know what you are and you know what you're supposed to do and that helps you do what you're going to do and uh I, I, I hate to sound like some uh, one of those life coaches or something <laughs> like that, but it's but it's true. You know, I, you, once you once you come to understand yourself much better, you uh, it, it makes it makes navigating through life uh, a much easier process. And do you feel like for you that you chose authenticity over perfection? Yes, I uh, I, I never looked at it that way, but uh, I I think that's true. So in the the second half of my life, I've kind of aspired to, to, to be a writer and I've trained myself to be a writer. And um, I'm not uh, I'm not bothered by perfectionism. I'm not uh, I'm not trying to 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 write something that the world is going to say, oh, this is the greatest thing ever written. I just want to write something that's true to myself. And and that's good enough for, for me. So it's. I, I think it's a better balance of the perfectionism. I try to write as well as I can and be as honest as I can and, and maybe even be a little bit entertaining. But at the same time, all I could do is what I could do. And that's good enough because, you know, like Al, mm-hmm. oh. I was going to say like that Al Franken line he had on Saturday Night Live, you know, like 
I can't even remember, but from the mirror, you know, right? I'm, yeah, I'm, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. What's the so, line? Uh, I love I I'm, mm, I love myself. I'm happy with my, like something like that. Uh, uh, he would say like really affirming things to the uh, the mirror yeah. back to himself. I wish I remember the line. Okay. It's funny. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, that, but that's the point. He's saying I'm worth of being. I'm worthy of being loved even by myself. And you know, it was funny when he did it, but it's very very true for people. What's so interesting is that, like, um, so I think, like, as obviously as kids and even a little later, we develop, like, these really shitty coping, shitty coping mechanisms for life. And so perfectionism is definitely one of them because in our minds we definitely believe that in some way that if we're perfect, we're going to be loved. But, I mean, like, now I can tell you, Glenn, like, with having you on our show, the thing that's, like, I'm sure this is the case for Alan as well. The thing that's drawing me to you is the fact that through your authenticity, I get to learn from you. And so from my perspective is that, like, if you, let's say you were perfect – I'm not, I mean, I'm sure I could learn some things from you, obviously, but I don't think they would be as impactful as the conversation that we're having now, which is literally teaching, I think, the both of us in terms of how to accept ourselves or about how to accept ourselves and love ourselves. Yeah, so like there's a, and you were just talking about it before, um, where you learn to accept yourself. Uh, when you were 23 uh, or 24, no, I think, I think it was 23 in the book. Um, it was like right after college. And um, you, your dad would see you around, you know, hanging out with friends and stuff like that. And uh, there was this, um, I'm probably not saying exactly as you said in the book, but it's like a, a time of desperation or like ch trying to, you know, find something to do. Um, to, because you kind of saw how he would see you and that feedback uh, like messed with your head at the time. Um, and I could really relate to that. Like right after college uh, i was not doing like the traditional uh path i was also kind of like uh hanging around with uh friends uh had trouble getting like uh, the job i was supposed to have and anything like that yeah. and uh that could really really mess with your head it's also a really good teaching experience but yeah when you don't have all that like taken care of at that time that could I remember for a long time, I, like personally, I was definitely depressed during that time. Yeah. Um, for you, uh, so you, you answered it already, but pretty much w what happened is like you, you reflected on that, right? And you were able to kind of uh, still pursue boxing anyway, and then eventually get that first professional fight and your, and your dad met. And I don't know um, if I'm saying his name right. Is it Bobo Nelson or is it Bob? Bo Bobo Olson. Bobo Olson. Wow, I'm sorry about that. Bobo Olson. Yeah. So when he met Bobo Olson, and then he actually like shook his hand, he was all happy to meet him, and I'm sure like for you that was a good moment because like up until then, uh, you it didn't seem like your dad appreciated what it was that you were trying to do. Yeah. So I think uh, th that's true. That th that day when when my father met B Bobo was was kind of a, a like an act of affirmation from him because i said geez he's he he's he's not thinking so badly about me boxing now and it, it was uh it, it's funny you know because my dad was not an openly emotional person and uh he kept his feelings fairly guarded and so that's one of the few times that he was just openly unguarded in his you know joy meeting bobo who was a big hero of his when when they were young. And so I said, my gosh, this is, I mean, I wish I had had a camera at the time. <laughs> it was something. 
Yeah. So, I, I, like, moments like that, especially, like, when you were trying for a long time to do this one particular thing, and, and things aren't going right, and it's, like, these weird phases where, like, uh, he couldn't see what it is that you're doing, like, leading up to that, that's, that's, a, that's a big moment. Like, a lot of people do things off of uh, faith when they're pursuing what it is that they're interested in, mm -hmm. and a lot of people in the beginning they're not they don't know what it is that you're up to because it's kind of like you only you kind of get it yourself yes and yes it's definitely rough to deal with like all these people telling you what you should do and what you gotta be and yes. what you gotta yeah. do sometimes it's right or it's coming from the right place but because they don't know what it is that you're trying to really do a lot of yes. times it's like the wrong advice yeah so yes it's, it's a difficult time because, like you said, people are telling you what to do, but they're not you. So they can't really know for sure. And and even when you're young was the case for me. You're just so confused about your options and your possibilities. You don't even know what you're supposed to do. And it's just it's kind of a frustrating time to just fare it through to figure out what you're going to do with your life. And uh, I don't. Did you guys ever see the movie The Graduate? Yes. Like So. I read the, the famous line in that, you know, so Dustin Hoffman's character has graduated from college and he's just kind of wasting through time. And some guy says, plastics, you need to get into plastics. Mm -hmm. And that that's this uh, per perfect business type sense coming from all these very affluent business people. But that was just not what that guy, you know, Dustin hit characters mm -hmm. or Hoffman's character had in mind. He goes, plastics, what the hell am I doing that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what did your dad want for you? I think he would have liked me to, to be a professional person, you know, to, to, to be a lawyer or something like that, or to really get, get a, an advanced education. And uh, he, I, I came to realize in retrospect that he would have liked the opportunity to, to be educated, but, you know, life, that wasn't possible for him when he was younger. And so he, what he kind of lived his the educational life through me and I, I i probably rebelled against that for for a bit which is kind of another natural story along human beings but you know mm -hmm. your your parents offer you something and well if that's what my parents want i definitely don't want that mm -hmm. and so, so that's a uh that was a coming together story that took a long time too but we we finally did <laughs> and did you ever feel like with through boxing you were fighting for his affection in some way acceptance at least no, because I, I knew uh, how I could have gotten his acceptance was to say, just go straight to graduate school or go to law school or something. Mm -hmm. and But I thought that would have been false to myself, but it would have made him very, very happy. So uh, I, I I wasn't going to do that at the, at the time. Mm -hmm. And it was frustrating for him because my two best friends in high school were living the, the life that you just mentioned. You know, they were doing the right thing so one friend went to law school immediately from graduating from college and my other friend got married and got a job and bought a house and started a family mm -hmm. and so so with the three of us there's me just kind of putzing around you know just having trying to have some fun day to day and not building any kind of life and so I think my father saw my friends making a life for themselves and he said what's the matter with my kid man mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah that's definitely rough that's definitely rough at that time. Yeah. yeah. And what was the time period like for you between the time that you, let's say, ended boxing the first time around and then went back to it? Um, I, I stopped boxing in the winter of 1983, like by January, February of 83. And uh, well, I, I, I always 
went to the gym. So I never really stopped working out, but I was just kind of goofing off of that. And um, the the ending part of the, the book where where I was told that I probably shouldn't box anymore was 1990. Mm-hmm. So I think I, I really began applying myself again in about 87 and started training full time again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was in 1990 when that kind of ended. So I was 32 years old. And uh, and uh, and that's what led me to writing because I realized then, oh, I gotta, I've, I've got to do something with my life now. But I, I had done enough, I guess you could say, work on myself, or I understood myself enough better that I, I wasn't um, hurt or damaged by by being told I couldn't box anymore, because I had no, I had, I had made a sincere commitment as I could, and I had done all that I could, and so. Uh, that wasn't good enough. That was fine with me. So I, I think that's a, a a good point where you realize maybe your perfection and about perfectionism balances is is at a healthy point because I was sad that that life had ended, but I I wasn't wounded by it that time because you know I had I had done the, all that I could and it just didn't work out and I was fine with that. Yeah. And you also chose authenticity. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And uh. uh yeah, there's a lot to be said for that. It's yeah. it's good. I'm gonna read his. I'm gonna read Frankel's book now. So, oh. no, so I I read in your tweet. So I'm gonna I'm gonna get Frankel's book. Yeah, Frankel's book is pretty, so. Uh, in terms of like the existentialist, Frankel's really good, and also Rollo May. So um, Frankel wrote Man's Search for Meaning, and Rollo May wrote Man's Search for Himself. So I think when it comes to authenticity, uh, Rollo May is kind of the better person to read because like Frankel's more about finding purpose and meaning. Even though I mean the concepts are always intertwined, but I think Rollo May. Is the better writer when it comes to sort of being your authentic self and what that even looks like. No, I've, I've read four or five of May's books and oh. they helped me a lot. Oh, and, uh, so I agree. He is he's he was quite a writer. Oh, that's so cool. Which ones were your favorites? Um, I uh, there was one with myth in the title, yes. like the search from yes, and, the cry the cry for myth, yeah, cry for myth. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote one about anxiety, which was very. Formative to to me, yeah. and uh, he man, he was he was a great writer. Yeah, we had great, and we had Kirk Schneider on the show last week, who was a collaborator with Rollo May. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was so cool. I will I will watch that now. Yeah, <laughs> that was really cool to have met him and to have talked to him. And so, like, I mean, existential ideas are so awesome because I feel like, well, I mean, not even I feel like it's true. They pretty much they're predominant to everyone. That's what makes them so cool. I think all of us struggle with perfectionism and authenticity, and especially kind of like what that internal battle is, and sort of trying to find out what it is that'll actually make us happy. It's uh, it's 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 not something that we're given as a birthright. It's something that you have to work for during the course of your life, and uh, and it's a struggle, but it's a struggle that's well worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in your in your last professional fight, now I I know how that went, but question: how how would you still have sized yourself up at the time? Because like you trained a lot for that uh, for last fight with uh, Lewis for Joe Lewis. Yes. And yes. like, how, how would you, I, I know that he did. Okay. So actually a little background, he didn't, uh, make weight as he contractually should have for that fight. Uh-huh. So like technically you could have not have taken the fight, but how would you still say like, you know, you feel like you performed against him, um, and, or how he did in the match? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm sorry that the weight problem that I had was, was in my, my second fight with a guy named oh, with Mike Hutchinson. Yes. Okay. That's right. And uh, 
Um, I, I think from an objective sense, you could say that I, I could have been in the locker room when I found out that the guy had, had not cut way like I had and said, no, I'm not going to do that. But um, you, you're, you're kind of in a state of mind. You're not, you're not thinking in any rational reasoned way because you're, you're, you're preparing to, to, to fight, which is kind of an irrational act when you don't have to do it. So that's why you're, you're supposed to have a manager to look out for you to say, no, this is, this is not going to happen. So I think I was pretty well prepared to fight, but I was just too weak to, 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 to do so. And, uh, uh, I, I guess well, we we just won't know. I was I was just I was so depleted. It's just you hear you hear stories today about people really damaging themselves, trying to make white or trying to become dehydrated, and they end up in the hospital. And uh, it's uh, it's just kind of sad. I feel it for for people who go through that because I know exactly w- what that's like. And so, I mean, I guess one of the most important questions that we can ask here is going to be, so Glenn, what was it like to, first of all, prepare for it and then to fight literally one of the greatest boxers of all time, Joe Lewis? No. Oh, well, uh, his name was Joe Lewis, but this was a different Joe Lewis. Oh. He was not the great Joe Lewis. Oh, <laughs> my but mistake. The, the, name, the, name is, uh, uh, the name is the same. It, it was kind of funny because when I told people I was fighting Joe Lewis, they said, <laughs> yeah. oh, man, you're going to get killed. <laughs> <laughs> wow okay i'm sure you've heard this pretty much your entire life though or most of it yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so who was that joe lewis so he was from san jose <laughs> and not not nearly as good as the real joe lewis yeah. but still good enough to beat me so uh-huh. uh I, I don't know what really happened to him he 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 didn't achieve much in boxing himself either so um that's a, what happened, there's so many boxers who competed at the lower preliminary rounds yeah. that, you know, no one hears of them except family members or some friends. Mm-hmm. And and uh, it's kind of like minor league baseball players. No one has ever heard of the guys who made it to AAA baseball but didn't get beyond to the, to the major leagues. And that's kind of the club that, that I was circling with. I got you. Well, what do you feel like some of the most important life lessons of boxing are? Like what are the ones that, I guess, what are the most important life lessons that you've learned from boxing? Uh, in, in retrospect, it's come around, it's, it's, it's kind of like the, the Stoics where you don't, you, you learn not to expect a whole lot mm-hmm. and you can't, you can't complain when things are not going your way because during the course of a fight, things are regularly not going to be going your way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, uh, a, again, it, it come to me with retrospect, but, uh, you, you learn not to get too upset when things are going bad or too elated when, things are going really well because you know the pendulum is going to swing back and uh you you kind of put things in context so so now i've worked for the state government here in california for over 30 years and sometimes you know you're around people that get excited or frustrated because some a deadline is you know we're kind of pushing a deadline and people are getting upset and i said this is not anything to get upset about really you know in the big context of things you're going to go home and eat your dinner come back tomorrow and it will be all right and so uh you i don't want to say boxing is always a life or death matter but it's a dangerous it's a dangerous activity in which you could get hurt or sometimes killed so once you have engaged in that a little bit you don't get upset too much about other things in in life because you realize you're still going to, you know, eat and go to bed and get up and it's going to be all right. 
and in your book you wrote that boxing was pretty much for you a case study or i guess a, yeah I mean, that's a good term for it. a case study in resource management in terms of economic theory what did you mean by that well uh i explained uh, a, a little bit about how uh, a boxer is always balancing what he wants with with what he wants costs mm -hmm. so you know you 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 don't want to be too offensive minded because then you leave yourself open defensively for for the other person so you're always kind of trading off your your offensive capacity and your defensive capacity and sometimes you have to trade that off your your trade off depends on who you're fighting and sometimes it even occurs throughout the fight where you're a little more tired or you could sense your opponents a little tired and so you're you're always balancing the costs and the benefits and that's what all your de decision making is and uh, boxers are not articulating this you know are not even consciously thinking of this but that's that's what's going on underneath all their decision making that that's occurring in a fight and so a lot of people think that there's no thinking that goes on in a boxing match and it's just two guys go out there windmilling fists and, <laughs> and that's not the case there's a, a a lot of thinking that's going on and uh uh, a lot of emotional thinking and then a lot of more uh, cerebral objective thinking. And it's, uh, to me, that's the traction of boxing anymore. So I don't really get that interested. In, I mean, sometimes I really just get interested in the fight as a sporting event, but a lot of times I just watch it as a drama because I like to think about what each guy is going through, say emotionally at the time, or what he's thinking and trying to do. And that's what the, the interesting part of boxing is for me. It's, it's it's not so much a sporting activity anymore. Yeah. Hmm. And like when I guess when you're watching the way they move and how they're fighting each other, that's that like from your experience, that's how you could kind of tell where they're at yes. in their head. Yeah. So a lot of times I could hmm. I could tell, say, a guy could be moving in a certain way, and 36, 30 seconds later, be moving a little differently, and I could tell what's happening either. He got a little intimidated, or maybe he he's becoming a little more confident now. And uh, I I guess that comes from experience, from having seen so much of it. But that's the interesting part for me. It's it's like watching a a, a play. There's a drama going on, and you try to understand the backstory. And 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 that's what's neat about boxing for me now. Yeah, and Glenn, what do you think about the quote from Rocky where he says the real battle is the one against yourself? That it's actually you against you. That's that is it. That 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 is it. So, uh, uh, man, I think I mentioned something like that in the book. Like you're you're actually physically fighting another guy, mm -hmm. but in reality, the real fight is with yourself. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes it's just to get out there. But it's also the fight is making those cost and benefit decisions about what's what what's going on and what you need to do. But that's it. Yeah. And probably that's it in life all the time. The real struggle is with your yourself right like you, you might have relationship troubles but if you really want to think about it the the, tr the struggle is w with you and how you're you're facing the relationship and uh yeah. it's not always comfortable to, to to struggle with yourself but that's what ultimately life is i think yeah and then sometimes you think like uh it's some for example in a relationship you think it's something somebody else did then sometimes yeah. it's just like your interpretation of what they did it's not like yes. a real reality. You might be projecting something, yep. and like yes. you have to catch these things. This way, you know, like what's what's you versus what's really them. Or and sometimes you find out it's it's not them at all. And then 
that changes things as if it's yeah. like an early part in the relationship, yeah, which absolutely. is good. Yeah. So. And so, like the beauty of project, whatever. I'm not, maybe beauty is not the right term, but whatever. I guess the way projection is, even though in some way it is pretty beautiful, is that projection can actually be both. Let's say, it could both be symbolic and it could be real at the same time. So what I mean by that is that let's say you can perceive that someone is rejecting you, or the other person could be rejecting you still, but it's still a projection of your own inadequacy. Mm -hmm. So it's like let's say if you get broken up with, right? It might actually be that the person, or not. Let me. That's a bad example. Let's say if somebody says, well, I don't know, I'm not. Not interested in spending time with you tonight because of whatever reason and in your mind it could be that oh my god this person this girl like she doesn't want anything to do with me she doesn't love me she thinks that I'm unworthy right so it could actually be that those things are true right but the thing is from that information you don't know that you don't so know. yeah right. it could just happen to be that that's true but you were actually you, you didn't have enough information to make that she could just be busy Right, right. Or, and or she's willing to do another day, but she just didn't say it. So then you thought this whole thing and you took it down a different path. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then so what she says that like, you know, pretty much I'm not able to spend time with you. Yeah. So it could be that she's just busy and you're just projecting your, your inadequacies onto her when it's an actual where the I guess reality of it isn't a good fit. But the thing is, sometimes projections do fit. And so what I think was so important about that Rocky quote was that, from my kind of interpretation and understanding of it, is that essentially it's always about your projections. Whether your projections fit with the reality or they don't, what matters is not so much whether or not you lose and what matters is not so much whether or not you get broken up with or whether somebody doesn't want to spend time with you. It's literally the way you interpret those things in the context of how you see yourself. And so when Rocky yes. says that, it's, yes. yeah, and so I think the kind of life battle, if we could chalk it up to anything, is one where we try to sort of accept and love ourselves despite all of the garbage that happens to us, which is why I think like Viktor Frankl had that quote where he said pretty much it's not the sort of circumstances that matter, but it's really your internal reaction. Because the idea is that if you don't personalize what happens to you, right, so if you can sort of see yourself as a sort of genuine and authentic and positive and good human being, that what really matters and what's important at bottom is not what happens to you again but it's pretty much the person you decide to become despite what happens or even because of what happens yeah. right so the yeah. idea is that self-love is really sort of at core of what we're all looking for mm -hmm. i gotta read that book then. yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know since you quoted rocky i, I want to ask uh you, you met stallone right y yeah but i mean for like 30 seconds i mean a minute or something not very long yeah well, what would you, anyway, just from kind of like seeing how he moves around, all that, I guess, interacts with people, what would you think of him anyway? Was that for Rocky, by the way, that he was doing his... Uh... No, he he was in the business of promoting fights for a while. So hmm. I met him in 1982. I think what Rocky came out in 76. So he was at the peak of Sylvester Stallone, the actor, period. You yeah. know, like he was the big man on campus and he knew it. And uh, I'm, I'm not dogging him for that, but I mean, he he was he was kind of regal, you know, and uh, just he just kind of had this air about him that was different from anyone else in the room. It was it was really, really kind of different. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I like the first Rocky. I didn't care too much for the others after that. But uh, uh, it was is this different i had never been around any like a mega mega celebrity like that before and it was it was just a kind of an air about him it was it was just kind of unique and and now you look back and everyone wants a picture taken with him and everyone wants to talk to him for 10 seconds so they could go home and tell somebody they talked to so Sylvester, you know and it's you know his people like that their time is not their own so much you know just whenever they're in some public place the public is just trying to latch on to them and and i and i was thinking god how uncomfortable of a life that would be to just 
yeah. always have someone one to peck on you like that. And uh, so he he was pretty patient with us. I think he had a you know a pretty good regard for boxers, so he he tolerated us pretty well. But uh, man, I think it would be hard being a celebrity. Yeah, and that's I mean yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so i learned something interesting with celebrities because uh, they don't they actually don't like so much i mean they don't mind taking the occasional photo and stuff like that uh but you're right there's this thing where that's kind of their whole life and they want to just like be around somebody who's just like yeah. normal cool relaxed around them kind of like with your with yeah. bodies or something so yeah. I, I i personally it's just like an aside comment i don't I don't ever ask for anybody's photos or anything like that. Yeah. I, I once upon a time was into that, but that's, we're talking like years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, I realized like you can't be their friend or you can't like really get to know them if you want to like take something from them. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it would be hard. And, and people have different attractions to being a celebrity. I remember uh, Bob Arum, the boxing promoter, was speaking about sugar ray leonard and marvin Hagler when when those guys were going to fight in the 80s mm -hmm. you know and aram said that ray leonard likes to be the center of attention he likes to be out in the public and people clamoring to want to be close to him in that and and he said Hagler was different Hagler wants to be the best boxer in the world but when he goes to a restaurant to eat he wants no one to notice him and just to be left alone so he could have dinner with his wife or whatever yeah. you know there's people have different relate or celebrities have different relationship to their celebrity you know yeah and a lot of times i think celebrities well celebrities and just like the people who are kind of chasing them they confuse what love and affection actually is yeah so, yeah because yeah, a lot of times well it depends on of course the person right so um if, like let's say a musician or a poet or a writer has touched you in some profound way and you just wanted to sort of share that with them i think that that's okay but like when it comes to like let's say sylvester stallone and this is definitely not a knock on him but the thing is like he's an actor right so we don't really know much about him so the people who like right. love sylvester stallone they don't love him they love rocky they love rambo they love right. cobra Right? They're right. like, oh my god, remember that fight that you had with like Apollo Creed or whatever? Stallone is like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. So it's different, like you said, with some writer or you're a poet right. who wrote this poem that you read once a month because it it has such meaning to you. Then you, I think you do know something about that person. Right. And maybe you would like to, to, to share your affection for the person but it's it's different for or athletes or, or even you know you might just love boxing and love watching boxes but you don't really know that person so much and it's this it's i mean that's kind of a projection of of itself yeah most definitely so uh, for me at least going back to the ideas because you seem to be it seems to be a big theme here of authenticity that i think that like if a person I, maybe even my i don't obviously know but my guess is that for a celebrity if they were approached for that reason to say like well like we had napoleon of the outlaws on and so for me like napoleon was a really big part of my i guess my teenage years because like his music really touched me and so him and tupac and the rest of them they were pretty much there for me at a period where i really needed them and i really identified with them and so i feel like like he's the type of person where because of the stuff that he put out where if you reached out to him and you tell him like hey like this is how you've affected my life for him i think he really appreciates that whereas opposed to like i don't know maybe somebody again who's like an actor or, i don't know maybe some other kind of profession where they don't really put them so much of themselves out there maybe for them it's like ah well you just want to like you want to get a picture with me to sort of improve or increase your status or you want to sell my autograph like right. athletes like usually dislike giving autographs because they know where those autographs are going they're going right on ebay Right, yeah. right. So I think so. Like what you're describing, uh, 
the, the musician, you're not attracted to the musician's celebrity. You're attracted to the to the artistry. Yeah. And 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 a lot of times people just want to touch some celebrity, not for not the person, but but the social image. And that's that's an entirely different matter. You yeah. know, most definitely. Yeah. All right, let me see what else we... Oh, so Glenn, I also wanted to focus on your influences. So who in your mind would you, in terms of when you were coming up in boxing, who were some of the people or the boxers who inspired you and who influenced you and who were the kind of, I guess, the prototypes for you? Well, I, I say my my favorite boxer of all time was Joe Frazier. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, uh, I envisioned myself as kind of a little white Joe Frazier when I was a kid. <laughs> and that was... That was one of the illusions that had to be stripped from me, you know, because I realized I was not Joe Frazier in any way, shape or form, you know. So you you kind of got to develop your own type of fighting style. But there's a, um, a, a couple of boxers. There's a, a, a guy named Jesse Burnett who who fought from Southern California, who uh, I guess if you just want to talk about style, who you look similar to in the ring, I, I kind of uh, f followed him for a bit. And then... Um, when I was younger, we didn't have access to to videos and 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 access to tapes to watch other boxers like we do now with YouTube and DVDs you could buy. But there's just uh, an older guy named uh, he's dead now, George Benton from Philadelphia, mm -hmm. who was just an absolute artist. And so you could you could see some of his fights on on YouTube where you could buy DVDs of his, and he's just an absolute artist. And I and I I could watch him now, and you know and in my little fantasy stages of my life, I, you know, just kind of envision moving like he did. And, uh, uh, and then it's funny, long before I met Yaki Lopez, he was, you know, a, a world renowned light heavyweight and that's the weight class that I was in. And so I used to have these little dream of fighting him someday. And then, uh, so it was really kind of a slap in the face, a, a real kind of shock to, to actually meet him, become his, his sparring partner. And, uh, once I began sparring with him, I realized that the, my dreams about how the fight would turn out if we had fought were different than what the real world would have been. Yeah. But uh, so uh, I, 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 I like Yaki a lot. So I watched him from, I think, about 1974. So even when I was still in high school, but uh, guys like Joe Frazier, George Benton, Yaki, this uh, is... Uh, and not not just the way they physically fought, but how they they carried themselves in their approach to boxing, and how they carried themselves in their approach generally in life. And and uh, Yaki still uh, has an influence on me. I think I could say that probably he and my father are the two most influential men in my life. And uh, so I, I told that to Yaki. I hadn't seen him for years when I wrote this book, and I I ran a copy down to him because I. Uh, I didn't want him to be surprised by anything that came out, and I, and I let him know that 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 he and my father were the two most influential people in my life, and it was important for me to say that to him. How did he respond? Uh, uh, it it meant quite a bit to him. Again, I say he's he he's not gonna bust out in tears and get all emotional, mm -hmm. but you I could see by his eyes that it, it meant an awful lot to him, yeah. which you know that was an important for me. Now, how in particular did he influence you? Like, what were some of the most important things that you learned from him? Um, he he was a, a like the the consummate professional to me. So he was always 
completely prepared for a boxing match. He, you, you hear today's about guys, you know, they say they're not in shape or they're not making their weight. He was always completely prepared. And, um, and he had a very stoical attitude about boxing. He was very serious about the boxing itself. But once the fight was over, he didn't take himself seriously or, or the event too seriously. And, and, and like I said, what was important to him is that he committed himself fully to winning and then he just let the chips fall where they may. And it, it, it didn't bother him that he won or lost as much as it would other people, although, you know, he was basically out there willing to die in order to, to win. And it's just, uh, of, um, almost kind of a mystic. I mean, I, I, I don't want to, you know, talk about him like he's saintly or anything, but he was, it was almost kind of mystical in how he, he approached boxing. And it's just a good way to approach life as, as, as well. And, uh, and it find in his name his his real name is Alvaro Lopez and he got the oh. name Yaki Lopez when he was uh, fighting and as an amateur in Northern California, and I I think his his manager introduced him as an Indian, mm-hmm. just to, to 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 create some sense of notoriety and then somebody said what tribe what tribe and so the only thing his na- his manager could, could think of was Yaki so that's why he that's how that nickname stuck. And, uh, uh, but he, he did have kind of a mystical extrasensory re- relationship to boxing. It was really, really impressive to, to see. Yeah. And, uh, you, you don't come across, or so I, I've been around boxing for a long time. You don't come across very many people who have the attitude developed as strongly as he did. Yeah. And what, what would you say is his, for, or was, I guess, his formula for resilience? How did he do it? Uh, well, some people are just born tougher than other, other people. So part of that, I think in his case was genetics, but, but the other part was that he, he trained so perfectly well. He was always in just top condition, would sometimes work out two or three days a week, I mean, two or three times a day, um, and was, uh, in very, very brave. So when he was younger, he, he had wanted to be a bullfighter. He he lived in Mexico till he was 13. And he had this attraction to being a gladiator type of artist under harsh, physically dangerous circumstances. So uh, before he became interested in boxing, he was attracted to bullfighting. So he just kind of had the stoical attitude about to activities like that. I wonder if in his mind he kind of viewed himself as being more than just a boxer or a gladiator. Uh, you know, I guess that was something I would have when, when I talked to him about some of the things we mentioned earlier, I think I'll try to bring that up because he would never bring that up on his own. Mm-hmm. I, I guarantee you, but maybe, maybe you could draw that out a little bit. Yeah. Maybe he had a good therapist. <laughs> <laughs> He's an interesting guy. Uh, he, he would go full, full in, uh, into a fight, but then what, whatever the result is, he didn't take it personally. And yeah, then, I think that's a good way of putting it. Yeah, so it's kind of like, um, I like that you said he had a mystic way about him. That, that sounds like it's kind of like he didn't have like a kind of like an ego coming in. Like he would try his best, but he didn't let the result mess with who he thought, he, like how he thought of it. Yo, that's that's exact. Well put. So he, 
he didn't have a false ego at all. There was nothing pretentious about his ego. And I think he understood himself very, very well. So we talk about authenticity. He was, I think, a very authentic human being from a early in his adulthood. He understood himself very well. And he didn't identify himself with the hierarchy of boxing. He, he identified himself with how he invested himself in boxing. And the actual yeah. results were of lesser importance than yep. that's, that's his, and his engagement. Yep. And I, I think, think that's attractment. That's the, I think the attraction, it's his engagement to boxing that, that is so beautiful. Yeah, and why, in my mind, that's such an excellent point is because Frankel pretty much said the same thing. So with Frankel and the way he kind of overcame the camps was by that. So for him, what was important to him was living up to his values. So which is, again, obviously not to say that we can do that every single time. But what I find is that, look, it's like the way, as I'm sure the both of you already know, because you've been alive for some time, that life is going to have its sort of its downfalls, right? Or its sort of pitfalls. And the thing is, it's like the idea is, and I'm going to give you guys a Rocky quote again after this, but the idea is essentially from Frankel and sort of being an authentic person it's just that it's pretty much that self-esteem or self-love can come from or stem from pretty much how well you ascribe not how well you ascribe to, how well you live up to your values so for Frankel it yes. Was pretty, yeah. yes so for Frankel it was pretty much that if I can remain a human being if I can remain as a person who is sort of committed to my ethics then in a sense that I could feel like okay this is a terrible experience but it's not one that has to debilitate and devastate me so authenticity in that sense means literally living up to or as trying as best as you can to live up to your values. So if let's say your values are courage, resilience, um, fortitude, determination, um, let's say persistence, right? All of these things are still possible even within the context of failure. So one can say that here are the outcomes, right? But here's the fact that I lived up to, or at least the, to the best of my abilities, I lived up to those values that for me make up what I think is a lovable person. And so going back to Rocky and Rocky Balboa from 2006, he had this phenomenal quote, which I pretty much use over and over again and as much as I can, where um, there's this great scene with him and his son and his son pretty much is, you know what I'm talking about, right? So his son is, you know, kind of complaining about life and he's like, oh, you know, like he's like, people don't respect me and I'm like in your shadow and they always think about you and then Stallone says, he's like, that's what cowards say. He's like, that's what, he's like, pretty much when it, comes, when it comes to life, he's like, life isn't about how hard you can hit, right? Life is pretty much about how hard you can get hit and then keep yeah. moving and keep getting up, right? It's pretty much yeah. that he says that winning is about how hard you can get, how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward and pretty much and keep getting up. So for him, life wasn't about how much you win or how much you lose or whether you fail or succeed. Yeah. It's pretty much how you keep moving forward and it's about character and grit and resilience and how will you live up to those values that can if you allow them to pretty much conceptualize who you are as a human being yes so i wrote about this a little bit uh it's kind of related to, to hemingway mm -hmm. so hemingway has this theory of what he called being undefeated mm -hmm. whether you're a, a, a boxer or a bullfighter or, or anything in life. And so you could lose the contest and still remain undefeated because you, you, you self internally, you're not beaten yourself. And so I contrasted that in my career when I ran and then I went into my funk, I was the epitome of a defeated person. Whereas Jockey fought for the world championship five times and lost each of those five times, but he was never a defeated person. He, he might have lost the fight, but he was never defeated be, just because of the, the, the values you, you mentioned, so because of his character and his understanding of what the context of the outcome of the fight was. And, and he knew it, the limitations of its importance. It, he was not beaten by being beaten.
And uh, that's a very, very important quality in life. And is that how Hemingway saw it too? Yes. Yeah. I think that's what, I think that's why he valued bullfighters, the best bullfighters and boxers, because that's how they, that's how they lived. And uh, you, you could lose without being beaten, but to allow yourself to be beaten is, is shameful. And I, and I kind of agree with that. And so you, if you are broken by your failures, you have to find some way to rebuild yourself. And, uh, uh, that's how you become an authentic human being. Yeah. And I think that as long as you're living up to or trying to live up to your values, you can't. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what you were just describing is, uh, sort of the, the existential code in, in literary figures, you know, you have those detectives like Raymond Chandler's Marlowe and guys like that. They have this code and they're not going to violate their values no matter what happens to them. And it's, that's a very impressive quality in a person. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so Glenn, I also wanted to ask, since you mentioned that before, um, because our kind of conversation took a more serious direction, I didn't want to really mention it, but now I really want to ask because it's like an itch. How come you didn't like the other Rocky movies? <laughs> uh, I didn't see that. Coming. So, well, I, 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 how many have there been? So, I, I think I've only seen four. I think I oh. stopped after the fourth. So they, uh, so six, I, I six Rockies and two Creeds. Okay, I haven't seen the Creeds either. It's although I heard, so I heard they're good. So good. All right. Um, <laughs> the first Rocky was very sincere, and I think a good representation of, like, the inner boxer, so so to speak. But after that. They just kind of seem to be clones of the the first Rocky, and I was less attracted to them. Yeah. So the second one was that Club? Yeah, oh, the Clubber second Lang. one was a rematch, and those Clubber Lang. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, the, the second one yeah was him and Apollo again, and then the third one was Clubber Lang. And 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 I and I talk about Rocky a lot. I think I've got a line in the book. I said for someone who says he doesn't like the Rocky movies a lot, I sure seem to reference them quite a bit. So I realize they have, they've they had an impact on me. Mm -hmm. yeah. What did you think of the fourth one? Is, is that Drago. with Drago? Yeah. I think I like that the least. I think that's why I stopped. <laughs> that's so funny. Because that's considered like one of the best ones, if not the best one by some is, people. Is that so? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. God. Rocky Four is like, yeah, it's considered like to be one of the better ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe I'll have to readjust my thinking. Let me. Yeah. Let, I'll 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 go back and watch them sometime. Uh, no, I'm I, actually with you, Glenn. I like the first Rocky. I like the four. I, I'm fine with the fourth yeah. one, but it wasn't like the best one. No, it wasn't the best. No, okay, yeah. No, most definitely it wasn't the best one, but I thought it was really good. I mean, and no, different strokes, different folks. You know what's yeah. interesting? So people hate Rocky Five. I actually loved it, and so and I always whenever I mention this, people always like give me the side eye. They're like, "What?" And I but I so here's the thing: the story itself, it could have been better. And Stallone like also disliked Rocky Five. But um, what I really liked about the story is that it wasn't like um, so. With Rocky Four was pretty much glitz and glamour. You know, it was about kind of the crowd fair. And it was um, like, you know, pretty much two different worldviews against one another. Whereas Rocky V became a personal story because he actually lost everything he had. So in the movie, like Paulie ends up, I, I don't remember exactly what happened, but Paulie gives his, their accountant like power of attorney. And then so their accountant invests like a good sum of their savings, like in some sort of fraud or whatever it was, some sort of fraudulent scheme. And then so what happens is they pretty much lose everything. And so Rocky has to go back to Philadelphia and then he lives with Paulie in like his old house. And then essentially, so he has like this really sort of terrible moment where he's like, I can't believe it. I'm just another part of the neighborhood. He's like, I, I, whether they achieved all of that for nothing, right? Just to come back 
care. And so he has this deep existential crisis. And so, I don't know, maybe it's not as entertaining for most people as like, you know, kind of the bigger fights on like the bigger stages. But the thing is, I think from the perspective of a Rocky story, what was so cool about it is that it started out initially where it was sort of the rise to fame, right? Where he was kind of like, you know, this sort of desolate guy who um, really didn't have much going for him. But then it sort of went back to those humble beginnings where now he had to figure out what to do with his life now that he lost everything. And so, I don't know, I just thought it was a cool story. So, so that was five? Yeah, so he fought Tommy Gunn in that one. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll watch that then. Okay. I'll, I'll watch that. Yeah, I'll get back to you. I'll, I'll watch it and get back to you. <laughs> yeah, I would really be curious as to what you think. And definitely the Creed movies, too. Those were excellent. Okay. Yeah. So there have been two of those, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the okay. second one right. is where he fights Drago's son. Oh my gosh! Yeah. All right, and they actually uh, so brought. Gotta see all the... <laughs> uh-huh. And they brought back. Well, I think his name is Dolph Langdon or Landon. Lundgren. That's Dolph his name. Lundgren. Lundgren. Yeah. yeah so yeah, they brought yeah. him back for the second Creed movie. So and it's the scene is incredible because like he's just yeah. staring at like um. So he's in Rocky's restaurant and he's staring at a bunch of these old photos. And Rocky walks in and he's like, "What the hell are you doing here?" He's like, "I haven't seen you in like thirty years." Oh no! All right. <laughs> so. Okay, so I've heard that the, the guy who directed Creed, uh-huh. as a, um, I can't remember his name. I, I think he lives in, or well, he probably doesn't live in Oakland anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, he made a good movie about Oakland, about the shooting at the transit station in, yes. in, in Oakland. And he went to college here in Sacramento at, at Sac State. Mm-hmm. So, so there was a little local connection to that. Yeah, and Michael B. Jordan was the actor in that movie. So before yeah. Apollo Creed, yeah, that's how they linked up. And I guess somewhere down the line, they're like, oh, let's make him Apollo Creed son. Oh, my gosh. All right. All right. <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, Glenn, um, I, I feel bad. I wanted to ask, actually, did, did we pass over anything that you wanted to talk about that like, we didn't bring up? No, I, I, I think what we concentrated on was kind of the essence of, mm. of the book that, that I, w- I was writing. So it's a lot about boxing, but I... I, I think I can honestly say it's not a book about boxing, mm-hmm. although there's a lot of boxing in it. It's about how a, a person becomes broken and then reassembles him himself, which is kind of what that's what your 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 podcast here is about in your your work. So that's why I was kind of interested in uh, talking to you guys, because it's it's kind of a personal a book of personal philosophical development that's that's what it is and i think we covered that pretty well yeah you know, like anyone who would check out the book or listen to this interview this is tremendous amount of value here i mean it's like especially there's so many people um who have like you know have uh, don't have the best circumstances happen in their life and that's a lot of people a lot of people can relate to that and they don't know how to come out of that how to build themselves back up or how to kind of overcome it you know yep a lot of people also are lucky enough to not have experienced a lot of, uh, you know, obstacles. Yeah. So they don't have to worry about things like this. But for the people who do, this is a, a tremendous value. There, there's so many more people like that than, than you would think. Yeah. yeah so. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. And, and that's true, you know, because uh, you, you can look at me. I, I grew up in a, in a pretty stable household, uh, pretty loving parents with a lot of structure and some guidance to go do something in life. And then I went and did, I took a detour from my, my family plan. So from any external view, I've had a really comfortable life and that's true, but you could still be from, from the external view doing pretty well and be struggling on the inside. 
seriously. And uh, so that's what I've, I've come to realize that you you can't know anybody's story really just from looking at them. They, sometimes there's a whole world going on inside their head that you have no idea about. And uh, w- once you go through a little period, I guess you become to you know you become some type of wounded healer, then you could understand or empathize with other people's struggles because you realize they're somewhat similar to your own. Yeah. I love the Rallo May quote. Yep. The yes. Wounded, yeah. yeah. And Kirk mentioned that last week. Yeah. That's, that's what I was just thinking. Like we literally were talking about this last week. Yeah. The wounded healer concept. Wow. Uh huh. So amazing how everything is sort of tied in, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. There's a lot of connections here. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Glenn, thank you so much for coming on again. I thought this was a really powerful discussion. Thank you, man. I really, really appreciate it. I'm glad to talk to you guys and meet you, so to speak, here. Yeah, most it's been, definitely. It's been great. Mm-hmm. Same so, here. And guys, uh, remember, the book is called Punching from the Shadows, Memoir of a Minor League Professional Boxer. Uh, if you want to find it, you can find it on YouTube. and uh, Not YouTube. I'm so sorry. <laughs> on, on, on Amazon.com. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, Glenn, if, if uh, let's say somebody wanted to follow you uh, on Twitter, what, what, what's your Twitter handle? I don't I have to look. I don't even know. <laughs> if I had to guess. I think, yeah, go ahead. Glenn Sharp, I think. At Glenn Sharp. Yeah, I think it's at Glenn Sharp 33. Oh, <laughs> yep, at Glenn Sharp Glenn 33. Glenn Sharp 33. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's I don't okay, even know okay. my own head off. Okay. No, okay. actually, that's a lesson for the future. Like, we should just have it. <laughs> <Yeah, yeah, yeah. laughs> <laughs> well, Glenn, are you on social media anywhere else or is it just Twitter? So, I'm on uh Facebook, but I, uh, I don't spend a lot of time on Facebook. I, I think I've kind of used that to connect with old high school friends for the most part. Okay. So I, I spend most of my time on Twitter. Okay, so Twitter is the place to find you. Yes. All right, Glenn. Thank you so much. For That's that. right. And if anyone has any questions, I'm always, I usually try to answer. If someone has some thoughts or questions about the book or anything, I, I try to interact pretty well. Oh, okay, cool. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. All right, so shoot uh, Glenn a message. if you Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, most definitely. And Glenn, any final thoughts or comments for our audience before we go? No, I just uh, I just want to thank you guys. I'm, I appreciate your, your thoughts about the book, and I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful to get to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks, Glenn. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Wow. All right, guys. Wow. That, yeah. was, that was cool. Yeah, such a good show, man. I can't believe I thought that I got the Joe Lewis thing wrong. Yeah, well... <laughs> Then I got it wrong. But that's okay. <laughs> well, anyway, guys, if you want to follow us, follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram and at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Remember to like and subscribe. Mm-hmm. Hit the bell. Hit the bell. Hit I just bell. I want to yeah. <laughs> and, and leave to... some comments, guys. Like We'll pretty much answer as many of them as we possibly can. And we want to know what your thoughts are. Grit, resilience, pretty much what makes up self-esteem and how a person themselves can come to an area of self-acceptance or self-love. Absolutely. And see you guys next week.